High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads? Now you can when you subscribe to our new premium offerings on Apple Podcasts and Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Longworth or open You Must Remember This on Apple Podcasts to learn more. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. Too sexy for my love. Just sex, not love, just sex. And sex just isn't cool without condoms for protection. You're a hooker. Sex. He talked about pornographic material. He gave me a lot of pleasure. So we can show the sex act all over the place. Sex in the night. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. 
We last talked about David Lynch in the first episode of Erotic 90s, when his film Wild at Heart was part of the conversation around the need to make changes to the rating system. Lynch's career had been at its commercial peak when Wild at Heart won the top prize at Cannes in 1990. At that edition of the festival, according to Newsweek, Twin Peaks fans gathered at the American Pavilion to watch VHS tapes of the TV show rather than attend premieres of international, soon-to-be classic films. But swiftly, there was a backlash. Wild at Heart underperformed at the U.S. box office. Lynch's next feature was Fire Walk With Me, a prequel to Twin Peaks that should have been a sure thing for that show's fan base. But because the film was much more challenging in terms of form and content than anything Lynch had been allowed to do on ABC, it was reviewed negatively and perceived as a failure. Five years passed before Lynch would release another feature, the longest gap between major projects of his career to that point. That feature would be Lost Highway, a nightmare journey through the darkest depths of masculinity and the sexual underbelly of Los Angeles. Partially inspired by O.J. Simpson and the 1994 murder of his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and sort of anticipating the trials of Lost Highway co-star Robert Blake, who, like Simpson, would be tried in both criminal and civil court for the murder of his wife. But Lost Highway also shares some themes with a 1993 Lynch release, Boxing Helena, written and directed by David's eldest child, Jennifer Lynch. Boxing Helena debuted at the 1993 Sundance Film Festival and then opened theatrically later that year. But the actual movie was swallowed by years of press coverage involving two actresses who had considered starring in the film. In fact, the legal battles over Boxing Helena stretched almost all the way until the release of Lost Highway in early 1997. Starring the late Julian Sands and Twin Peaks actress Sherilyn Fenn, it is a movie about a man who is driven wild by a sexually liberated woman who doesn't want him and his compulsion to take away her power by literally hobbling her at her knees. Though Lost Highway is a much more narratively complex film, it is also ultimately about how men are driven to capture and tame the highly sexual women who, quote unquote, drive them crazy, allowing the men to blame their violence on female sexuality and uncontrollability. In some ways, Boxing Helena feels like a crude blueprint for the intricate masterpiece that is Lost Highway. Today, we're going to talk about both of these films, what it means to call something Lynchian, and why, though the Lynch sensibility was incredibly influential in the 90s, the culture in that decade was maybe not ready for what either of these movies had to say about sex between men and women. We'll also talk about O.J. Simpson and Robert Blake, two famous men whose high-profile trials revealed much about how our culture views male violence as a consequence of female sexuality. Join us, won't you? for part 17 of Erotic 90s.
This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011, featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Boxing Helena's genesis was at Helena's, an exclusive 1980s nightclub in Westlake, a Los Angeles neighborhood then ungentrified enough to scare off agents and exotic enough to lure their starriest clients. Madonna was a regular, although maybe not for Wednesday night poetry night, which drew a younger, more bohemian crowd, Justine Bateman, Robert Downey Jr., and Jennifer Lynch. Lynch later recalled that she was reading poetry one night at Helena's circa 1988, and after she was finished, a man named Philippe Calland approached her and said, I have this screenplay I'd like you to write about a woman who is cut up and put into a box. Lynch was initially repelled by the concept, and then she thought about a primal memory from her childhood involving a replica of the Venus de Milo that her grandmother kept on display in her house. I was born with these terrible clubbed feet, Lynch recalled. They put me in casts the day I was born. I was operated on when I was four. I was sat at the base of the statue of the Venus de Milo and was fascinated by how people looked at her, as if she was beautiful, even though she was broken. And that sort of helped give birth to the basic idea of boxing Helena. The bridge from the Venus de Milo to the actual story of a surgeon amputating the arms and legs of an ex who he is sexually obsessed with was provided by Lynch's own experience in relationships. She later said, Obsessive love is like a series of amputations as you steal from one another. Her self-esteem is her body, her beauty, and he's taking that away. This is what women go through. She wrote the script in a matter of weeks, but it took two years to sell. I was young, I was female, I had plenty of notches against me, Lynch later explained. 
When asked if being her father's daughter had hurt or helped her career, Lynch said, both. Nepotism is a weird thing. I've lost the ability to ever come in cold. And I think it leads people to believe that there is a certain kind of arrogance or ego involved with a film, but I don't blame them. If I heard that Sofia Coppola was directing a picture, I would probably think the same thing. This was six years before Sofia Coppola directed her own first feature. After finishing the Boxing Helena script, but before she knew how she was going to get it produced, Jennifer took a job offered by her father to write The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, a companion book to Twin Peaks. The content of this book was referenced during the series' second season and became part of the larger lore of the series, explored in Twin Peaks' Firewalk With Me and Twin Peaks' The Return. Finally, a producer named Carl Mazacone decided to take Boxing Helena on and hired Jennifer Lynch to direct her own script. Lynch and Mazacone agreed that the part of Helena closely resembled the public persona of Madonna. Certainly, the film deals with male feelings of emasculation like those that were commonly inspired by Madonna's strength and sexual assertiveness, which we've discussed previously. There's one scene in which Helena jumps fully clothed into a fountain at a party, sparking every man in the place to ogle her and much tisk-tisking from uptight female spectators, which could have easily been the action of a mid-80s Madonna video. In another scene, after Helena has become a captive in the surgeon's house, she tells him exactly how he failed to satisfy her in bed. You know what, Nick? Never had an orgasm with you. Not one. <sighs> you shook the entire time. Remember I had to tell you what to do? Hands everywhere. <laughs> Sloppy. Shaky, shaky, shaky. I was afraid. You still should be. I only wanted to make you feel good. You have the faintest idea how to make me feel good. Madonna agreed to make the film, but then she decided to do A League of Their Own and dropped out of Boxing Helena in early 1991, four weeks before she was supposed to start filming. As Mazacone recalled, she was scheduled for a prosthetics fitting the next day. We lost almost $750,000 and had to fire close to 100 crew people. It was the first time I cried in my adult life. So many people were counting on me. We were starting to build our set. I had to meet a $250,000 payroll. I mortgaged my house. Yet, Mazacone didn't sue Madonna, but he did file a lawsuit against the actress Lynch chose to replace Madonna, Kim Basinger. Basinger had asked Lynch to do rewrites to her specifications before dropping out in the late spring of 1991. As Mazacone told the New York Times, she damaged my picture and my life. I have a lot of bills to pay and she's going to pay me. Basinger maintained that she had never signed a contract to appear in the film. 
The producer said that once she traded up from a comparatively minor agency to ICM, her new agents thought boxing Helena was too big of a risk and told her she couldn't do the movie as written. She wanted the character to be less of a bitch, Mazacone said. We did our best to tone it down, but if Helena isn't a bitch, the movie won't work. In court testimony, Basinger said that she had misgivings when she started showing the script to people she trusted and, quote, the overwhelming response was, this was a joke. A jury decided that Basinger had breached a verbal agreement and ordered her to pay $9 million in damages. She declared bankruptcy before the verdict was overturned on a technicality. Basinger eventually paid a multi-million dollar settlement to close the matter in 1996. Boxing Helena finally started shooting about a year after Basinger dropped out, with the younger, far less famous Sherilyn Fenn in the title role. But Basinger's commentary as to why she didn't want to make the film was widely reported before most people ever saw Boxing Helena. It's impossible to know how Boxing Helena would have been received if its messy backstory hadn't preceded it, but certainly it didn't help. Have you heard of Nordic Knots? The Scandinavian rug company that has become the insider brand gracing some of the most beautiful homes around the world? With rug designs by some of the world's leading designers and a signature collection of wool and jute rugs in modern colors? But Nordic Knots is not just about great design. Their mission is to make quality rugs that last, with no compromises. Goodweave certified, handmade pieces woven in all natural materials. At NordicKnots.com, it's easy to find a rug that's just right. A curated collection in lots of colors and sizes to choose from. Even custom sizes are possible. So, whether you're the type who loves the understated elegance of their luxury essentials or the bold statements from their top designer collaborations, you can't really go wrong. Oh, and don't tell anyone, but right now, you can get a free sample with the code INNERCIRCLE. NordicKnots.com Boxing Helena is, spoiler alert, not about a girl named Helena who gets cut up and put in a box. It's really the story of Nick Cavanaugh, played by Julian Sands. Nick is a surgeon who is haunted by memories of his mother, a bombshell resembling Anna Nicole Smith, who apparently treated Nick like he was an unwanted nuisance, threatening to interrupt her active sex life. Nick is emotionally stuck in prepubescence, and so when the gorgeous Helena rebuffs him after a single sexual encounter shortly after his mother's death, he becomes obsessed with vanquishing his mother's ghost by possessing Helena by any means necessary. When she gets hit by a car in front of his house, Nick performs an emergency amputation of Helena's legs and then keeps her captive in his house, eventually also chopping off her arms until she finally stops taunting him over his total sexual inadequacy and begs him to make her feel like a woman again. Only when Nick has successfully Stockholm syndromed his prisoner does another guy who's obsessed with her, a gun-toting dirtbag in leather pants played somewhat hilariously by Bill Paxton, come to try to rescue her. 
He punches Nick out, who wakes up in the hospital and realizes it was all a dream. Helena did get hit by a car, but Nick was able to get her into an ambulance in time for doctors who were not sexually obsessed with her to save her legs. Everything else, it turns out, was Nick's sick fantasy. And instead of exercising the trauma inflicted by his mom through Helena, he will now be tortured by recurring nightmares in which he is forced to face his subconscious desire to abuse a woman into sexual submission. This summary of Boxing Helena's plot and themes is somewhat more coherent than the film itself, which has some problems with tone and narrative flow and execution. But the film works to the extent that it does because Julian Sands plays his adult male character as though he were a wounded little boy, and he's very good at it. Sherilyn Fenn's casting has a meta value in a different way than Madonna's would have, Here, Jennifer Lynch is using an actress from her dad's TV show to tell a story with heavy Oedipal undertones. Fenn is excellent at playing a sexually empowered woman with absolutely no compunction to soften her contempt for her captor. Because Helena is so unafraid of Nick, viewers may want to see her triumph over him, or at least outwit him. But Lynch keeps the film wedded to his perspective. The only real weapon in Helena's arsenal against Nick is her voice. And as if hoping that if she humiliates him badly enough, he'll let her go, Helena keeps relitigating his sexual failure, at one point eliciting this desperately childish response from Nick. You know, I can't say I don't know how she feels. You must have lasted, what, a whole two seconds with me? You're a goddamn joke. You don't understand. I love you. If you were a real woman, you'd lie to me about our sex. Real women lie all the time. Real men lie all the time. Real people do a lot of things, and you bet they lie. But when they lie about sex, bedroom lies, it is out of love and respect for certain feelings. And I don't give a shit about your feelings. At the end of this clip, Helena tries to choke him. But since she no longer has legs, she doesn't really have the strength to overpower him. Still, taking no chances, shortly thereafter, he cuts off her arms. Near the end of the movie, Helena suddenly welcomes Nick's advances. And when Paxton's Ray shows up with a gun to rescue her... She tells him she doesn't need rescuing. It's worth questioning what is happening here. Has Helena fallen for her captor? Is she playing a longer game of disarming one violent man through sex so that she can arrange her own escape without relying on another violent man? Or is this Nick's dream of finally truly possessing Helena turning into a nightmare? Which seems to be what the movie is suggesting, by showing Nick immediately thereafter wake up to learn that none of this actually happened at all. Helena debuted at the 1993 Sundance Film Festival, where a New York Times piece described it as the festival's most talked about film, even though it was unveiled alongside Robert Rodriguez's breakout, El Mariachi. 
But Boxing Helena did not find a distributor at the festival. Finally, in May, it was announced that Orion would release it. Orion was trying to get back on its feet post-bankruptcy. They tried to promote it, to quote an LA Times piece on the marketing challenges the movie posed, as a must-see event movie based on the controversy it engendered almost from the start. Much of that controversy had to do with the lawsuit against Basinger. Then, after Sundance, Boxing Helena had a long, highly publicized battle with the MPAA, which rated the film NC-17. At Sundance, Lynch had circulated a petition asking the ratings body to reconsider. The MPAA caters to the audience, so I want them to hear what the audience has to say, she said. At the same festival, Philip Kaufman, director of the first NC-17 film, and to that point, the only one released by a studio, gave a talk in which he expressed his disappointment with the rating. Quote, The NC-17, I thought, would open up a whole new area of filmmaking. But unfortunately, the studios won't make an NC-17 film. I need the R rating, at least domestically, Lynch told The Hollywood Reporter, cheekily adding, I don't want to cut off the legs of the film before it's even out there. By June, Boxing Helena had gone before the MPAA three times. Each time, producer Mazacone said, they had made the cuts the board had requested the previous time and still couldn't get an R rating. The following month, the producers finally won their R on appeal by arguing that nothing in Boxing Helena was more explicit than what was seen in other recent R-rated films, such as Sliver and Basic Instinct. Whatever you think of either of those Sharon Stone movies, they were made by filmmakers with much more experience than Jennifer Lynch. And in terms of cinematic sophistication, there is no comparison. I think Boxing Helena is an interesting movie, but not a great one. And because there are some strong ideas in it, I wish the filmmaking was more mature. I agree with Rolling Stone's Peter Travers when he writes that what Jennifer Lynch sees as high drama is really high camp. But Travers, like many critics, also includes in his review the information that, quote, Helena is the role that Madonna rejected and Kim Basinger walked out on. The implication being that even those bimbos knew better than to actually lend their faces to this material. This is where most critics and a lot of viewers came into Boxing Helena, which seems to have clouded their ability to see what is actually innovative about the movie for 1993. Namely, that it shows that female sexual power is resilient enough to endure the removal of four limbs while portraying male sexuality as toxic not just to women, but to the men themselves. There were positive reviews. In Playboy, Bruce Williamson called it a cinematic spellbinder, slick and provocative, and gave it three bunny heads. In the New York Times, Janet Maslin cleared her throat by reiterating the litigation and mocking Lynch's pretensions, before offering an ultimately positive review that taps into what the film is saying about heterosexuality. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Times, which had devoted plenty of ink to the Basinger trial, seemed to delight in digging Boxing Helena's grave. During the trial, six months before Boxing Helena opened to the public, 
the Hollywood-area paper of record published an angry letter from a reader named Maxine Daly Locker, who objected to the very premise of the film as promoting violence against women. Every two minutes in this country, a woman is assaulted, beaten, or raped, wrote Locker, who added sarcastically, this film is a big help. The paper's official review by Kevin Thomas revolved around an apparent misunderstanding of the film's reality. Quote, devoid of wit and irony, the film becomes merely a simple, blunt expression of extreme fear of women compounded by the preposterous, not to say dangerous, notion that absolute helplessness causes a woman to fall in love with a man for whom she had previously expressed only contempt. So he gets that it's an indictment of male fear of women. He doesn't get that it's also an indictment of male fantasies about how to control women through abuse and captivity. And he seems to ignore the twist ending in which Lynch reveals that Nick's abuse of Helena was happening in his troubled subconscious. The ending gave a lot of observers trouble. Even in her mostly positive review, Maslin suggested that Lynch has nowhere to take her erotic parable except to a dead end. In Variety, Todd McCarthy called the ending deflatingly contrived, to a great extent taking the edge off the points the film is making. But Lynch was damned if she did, damned if she didn't. Either people accused her of suggesting that men should kidnap and dismember women they want to fall in love with them, or she was criticized for couching those actions as male fantasy because it was considered hacky to do an it-was-all-a-dream ending. In addition to Thomas's review, the LA Times ran an essay by Bonnie Moran, headlined, Boxing Helena Degrades Us All. Quote, When Helena falls in love with the man who has stalked, imprisoned, and dismembered her, the man to whom she has repeatedly said no, the film takes the misguided notion that when she says no, she really means yes to the apex of absurdity. Did Moran walk out before the end of the movie? Or was she merely cherry-picking aspects of the story that would support a protest against Hollywood under the guise of feminism? Her essay ended with a call to action that appropriated another Hollywood movie, Network. As long as women's safety and dignity teeter on the edge of the celluloid strip, there is a need for women to speak out, to say to the film industry, stop degrading us, stop killing us off for entertainment value because you are putting us in danger and we're angry about it. In fact, in the immortal words of Howard Beale, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take this anymore. The lack of media literacy amongst Boxing Helena protesters was truly astounding. A group called the Women's Action Coalition protested Boxing Helena's premiere at the Music Hall Theater in Beverly Hills. As WAC spokeswoman Becky McSpadden told Variety, the film is very dangerous because it shows what purports to be love. But cutting off arms and legs is not love. There's plenty of evidence to show that violence on the screen glamorizes violence. In a later interview, Lynch reminisced, I just couldn't figure out why people couldn't see it as a study on characters. 
why the fuck would a 19-year-old write a misogynistic torture porn? It made no sense to me. And there were people picketing the movie, saying shit like, what do we want? Arms and legs. When do we want them? Now. I was like, you've got to be kidding. If a man had made it and it hadn't been David Lynch's child, I guarantee you no one would have batted an eye. In 1994, Boxing Helena won the Razzie for Worst Director. The competition was fierce. Lynch was up against Adrian Lyne, whose Indecent Proposal won three Razzies that year, including Worst Picture. The anti-sex bias of the Razzies was all over their nominations that year, which also included citations for Sliver and Body of Evidence. But as the only female director nominated in her category, Lynch got to be the vehicle for the awards body to also exercise their misogyny. To add insult to injury, they never sent Lynch her trophy. And I'm pissed off, she joked later, adding, I want my fucking raspberry. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. When Lost Highway was released in 1997, David Lynch participated in a live conversation at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York. One audience member asked a question about how Lynch processes the influence of other films. Do you uh, use like other films as sort of like a creative uh, springboard? No. I think, you know, a, a film is digested uh, ideas and processes Uh, If you take from things that have uh, gone through that process, you're further away uh, from the source. And um, the the ideas are the most important things. And they seem to be um, lying there in an ocean and available. And so if you could go in and get uh, your own idea, now it may have similarities to many things that have gone before, but you feel it's it's, it's yours, and you fall in love with it. And that's a very good feeling. Lynch, who is notorious for frustrating anyone who wants a straight answer to any question about his films, starts this answer by saying that, no, he doesn't use other films as creative inspiration. But then the rest of the answer is basically saying, yes, every film is the result of diving in a collective ocean of ideas. But the filmmaker has to rid themselves of the anxiety of influence. It's an interesting idea to take into a viewing of Lost Highway, which seems to be the result of Lynch, consciously or otherwise, digesting and processing a couple of other things floating in the ether, including his daughter's much maligned first movie. Both Boxing Helena and Lost Highway deal with male sexual dysfunction and fragile masculinity. They examine men who are attracted to sexually confident, unattainable, uncontrollable women and become compelled to change and possess these women. Both films incorporate structural elements of dream or nightmare, 
in response to trauma. David Lynch's acknowledged starting points for Lost Highway were a novel called Night People by Barry Gifford, who also wrote the basis of Lynch's Wild at Heart, and O.J. Simpson. Gifford's novel included the phrase Lost Highway. Lost Highway, the movie, took more from the former football hero turned suspected and eventually acquitted murderer. Here, Lynch explains. I didn't ever say anything at the time, but I had had a fixation on O.J. Simpson, the trial. And I think uh, some of this uh, grew out of O.J. Simpson because uh, here is a guy who, at least, you know, uh, I believe, you know, committed two murders and yet is able to go on uh, living and, and speaking and, you know, doing and um, golfing things like this and so what does the mind do uh when it when you know after something like that after a, a you know uh horrific murder and and that experience how does the mind protect itself from that knowledge and go on and that's interesting to me and the mind is interesting you know for sure huge huge stories in the mind but that's one thing, um, and when we, Barry and I talked about that. How does the mind trick itself so that that can be put in a place where it no longer um, has that, you know, uh, horrific power, and you go on living? Lost Highway was made independently, with financing coming from a deal Lynch had struck for his production company with the French outfit City 2000. The finished film was then acquired for distribution for $10 million by October Films, who outbid Warner Brothers for the rights. This was huge for October, which would soon be acquired by Universal and eventually morph into Focus Features, but at the time was a fully indie distributor, known for such films as Mike Lee's Life is Sweet and Abel Ferrara's The Addiction. Lynch used a house that he owned, on the same street as the house in which he was living with his long-term girlfriend and producer-slash-editor Mary Sweeney, as a shooting location on Lost Highway. It played the house occupied by Fred and Renee, a jazz saxophonist and his goth vamp wife, played by Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette. Their first dialogue exchange could be taken from a mid-century marriage comedy, but under Lynch's direction, it's performed as full of ominous import. You don't mind that I'm not coming to the club tonight? What are you going to do? Stay home. Read. 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 Read what? Um. (laughs) It's nice to know I can still make you laugh. I like to laugh, Fred. One morning when Renee goes outside in her black silk robe and platform heels to collect the paper, she finds an unmarked envelope containing a VHS tape. 
Fred and Renee throw it in the VCR, and turns out it's footage of their front door. The couple start receiving more mysterious videotapes, each with evidence that someone is surveilling them in their home. Meanwhile, Fred starts to become suspicious that Renee is sleeping with a guy named Andy, who looks like if the Joker didn't wear makeup and was a late 90s club bro. Fred may also be losing his grip on reality. At one point, he looks at his wife next to him in bed and sees her Betty Page haircut on the face of Robert Blake. Fred and Renee go to a party at Andy's weirdly classy mansion, and Fred encounters Robert Blake in the flesh. Blake's character is named Mystery Man. He has his black hair slicked back, but otherwise, with pale face powder and dark lipstick, cosmetically he's made up just like Renee. And he seems to know that Fred has seen him while looking at his wife. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. What do you mean you're where right now? At your house. That's fucking crazy, man. Call me. Dial your number. Go ahead. I told you I was here. How'd you do that? Ask me. How'd you get inside my house? You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. Who are you? Hmm. <laughs> Give me back my phone. It's been a pleasure talking to you. After this party, a final video is delivered, one showing Fred apparently having murdered his wife, cutting her in half like the Black Dahlia. He is sentenced to death by a jury and imprisoned awaiting the electric chair. He seems totally unaware of having committed this crime, 
But then in solitary confinement, he starts having blinding headaches and visions of a burning shack, of Robert Blake, and of a dark two-lane highway that leads him to a dark young man. We seem to enter the skull of one of these men. And then in the next scene, the prison guards are shocked to discover that Fred is not in his cell and has been replaced by the young man from the vision. Pete, played by Balthazar Getty, has no obvious connection to Fred or the murder of Renee, so the prison officials release him. The movie then switches to an apparently new storyline involving Pete, his girlfriend, played by Natalie Wood's daughter, Natasha Gregson Wagner, his job as a mechanic at a garage run by Richard Pryor, his dealings with a gangster named Mr. Eddie, played by Robert Loja, and his affair with Mr. Eddie's mole, Alice, played by Arquette. What has happened here? You get the sense from reading and watching interviews with Lynch that he wished he could get away with offering no decoder guide whatsoever. And in some ways, the film was a mystery even to its makers. One of Lost Highway's most indelible images is of a desert shack on fire. Lynch did not conceive of this image until they were on set, shooting a scene in that shack. And when he found out the art department was going to demolish it anyway, he asked, Can we blow it up? And Balthasar Getty later said that he and Arquette didn't even know what kind of movie we were making while we were shooting. Mystery and surprise and oblique meaning are all so much a part of Lynch's films that his fans wouldn't be happy if they weren't part of the package. But in the media climate of early 1997, Lynch wasn't really able to get away with totally obscuring his intentions when promoting a film starring the guy who had played the president in Independence Day the summer before. Still, it was his co-writer Barry Gifford who offered the most succinct explanation in an interview with Rolling Stone. Fred, according to Gifford, gets into a fugue state, which in this case means that he can't go anywhere. He's in a prison cell. So it's happening internally within his own mind. But things don't work out any better in the fugue state than they do in real life. He can't control the woman any more than he could in real life. In other words, we are supposed to read the Pete portion of the movie as Fred's fantasy. Or, more precisely, the escape hatch his psyche creates so that he doesn't have to deal with the fact that he did kill his wife, and he is in prison, and he is going to be executed. O.J. Simpson lived in denial and then got to live a fantasy life post-acquittal, at least until he went back to prison for a stupid blunder. Fred's denial takes the form of a fantasy life as a younger man surrounded by beautiful women in which he has the friendship and protection of a powerful father figure, at least until he blunders that by getting involved with blonde bombshell Alice. Here, the psychological fugue starts to resemble a musical fugue. The second narrative section of Lost Highway becomes a variation on the first and then folds back over so that the two parts are intertwined. Troublingly, one key to interpreting Lost Highway that Lynch has offered suggests that Fred slash Pete's problem is that they are attracted to the wrong woman. Interviewer Chris Rodley commented that Fred is, quote, so fucked up that even his imaginary life goes wrong. To which Lynch responded, 
But why though? Because of this person, this woman. No matter what place you start walking, eventually you're going to walk into trouble if you're walking with the wrong person. This simplistic read is perhaps what Lynch thought viewers in 1997 wanted. And maybe he was right. Certainly, in 1997, mainstream audiences were just as uninterested in the idea that a man's toxicity could follow him into his fantasy life as they were in 1993 when David Lynch's daughter made a film with the same premise. To me, both Boxing Helena and Lost Highway are about men with the compulsion to dismember women as punishment for their excessive or withholding sexuality, who realize they can't escape into fantasy because their self, the self that knows who they really are, follows them even there. Which is why it feels so strange to read an interview with David Lynch in which he seems to say, no, in my movie, the murderous man can't escape into fantasy because the devil woman follows him there. But the scene of Last Highway that I find the most startling seems to ask for a more complex interpretation. It begins with Alice suggesting, in classic noir babe fashion, that she and Pete pull a score so they can run away together. We could just get some money. We could go away together. I know a guy. He pays girls to party with him. He's always got a lot of cash. He'd be easy to rob. And we'd have the money. We could go away. We could be together. Have you partied with him? Part of the deal. What deal? He works for Mr. Eddie. Yeah. What's he do? He makes films for Mr. Eddie. Pornos. Yeah. How did you get in with these fucking people, Alice? Pete. No, Pete. Yeah. I want to know how it happened. Long time ago, I met this guy at a place called Mokes. We became friends. He told me about a job. In pornos. No, <laughs> just a job. I didn't know what. In flashback, we see Alice forced at gunpoint to strip for Mr. Eddie. The scene ends with her kneeling before him. The flashback is soundtracked by a cover of I Put a Spell on You by Marilyn Manson, who, incidentally, was part of a crew that would gather at Lynch and Mary Sweeney's house during post-production for long nights of wine drinking and bullshitting. After the flashback, 
Lynch cuts to a wounded, petulant Getty. Why didn't you just leave? You liked it, huh? If you want me to go away, I'll go away. When Lynch cuts back to Arquette, her face looks pained and sad, but she quickly composes herself to tutor Pete on her criminal plan. I guess we're supposed to think she's a conventional hard-boiled dame, using this poor disposable sap to get what she wants. But why shouldn't she use him to get revenge on the men who have exploited her? especially after Pete reveals that he blames her for her complicity in that exploitation. This is Lost Highway in a nutshell for me. It's about the fragility of men who demand that the women in their lives be both virgin and whore, fully sexually uninhibited within the confines of monogamy. But that knowledge of the woman's sexuality drives the man crazy, scrambles his brain, makes him think and do terrible things, ranging from killing his wife when he suspects she's been with another man, to laying the blame at her feet for not preventing her own sexual assaults. What's a girl to do amongst men who are so incapable of seeing her as anything but their fantasy or their downfall, other than become what they are convinced she already is? Most writing released contemporaneously to the film ignored this scene. One exception was a Rolling Stone cover story by McCall Gilmore, which combined an interview with Lynch with a passionate defense of Lost Highway. Gilmore observes that in this scene, quote, she is terrified at first, but her body starts to undulate in movements of pleasure, as if she's turned on by being forced into this act. Then she puts her head between Mr. Eddie's legs, smiling the perfect smile. This critical analysis seems to take the point of view of the Baltazar Getty character, accusing Alice of being not just compliant, but excited to be in a situation in which she has no choice but to perform sexually in order to save her own life. That this could be a performance seemed to be beyond observers of the film which maybe is testament to the skill with which Lynch mounts Fred's fugue state as a convincing, all-consuming nightmare of male anxiety. Is it a wonder that several male critics located much of the problem with the film in its depiction of sex? Arquette, wrote David Denby in New York Magazine, seems thick and dulled, as if she's had too much sex, but isn't really interested in anything else. She appears first with long black hair, then with blonde hair. Whether she's two women or one is impossible to say, but she's certainly the ultimate noir girl, Veronica Lake and Jane Greer combined and naked at last, an entirely available and inexhaustible sexual possibility. That the noir babe was now naked at last was, for Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly, the problem. 
Arquette, he wrote, with her 40s-style curves, is certainly a spellbinding temptress. But Lynch's sex scenes now feature so much tawny flesh that they've relinquished all suggestiveness, like the steamy trysts and mediocre Hollywood thrillers. By the time the film reaches its heart of darkness, it has something to do with a porno movie. Lynch, for the first time, seems to be using avant-garde tricks to pass off as taboo, what looks to the naked eye like mere routine sleaze. Even David Foster Wallace, in a report from a visit to the set published in Premiere magazine, described the marital sex scene between Pete and Renee as, quote, creepy, partly because it's exactly what I imagine having sex with Patricia Arquette would be like. Rude. The novelist spent three days on the set of Lost Highway in January 1996, about a month before his breakout success, Infinite Jest, was released in hardcover. His set report ran in the magazine months before the movie came out, which is odd given that it had been a whole production just to get access. The fact is, Wallace wrote in a footnote, I was let onto Lost Highway's set mostly because there's rather a lot at stake for Lynch and the production company on this movie, and they probably feel like they can't afford to indulge their allergy to PR in the media machine quite the way they have in the past. The obvious Hollywood insider question, Wallace allowed, is whether the movie will rehabilitate Lynch's reputation. For me, though, a more interesting question ended up being whether David Lynch really gives a shit about whether his reputation is rehabilitated or not. Rolling Stone's Gilmore also suggested that Lynch had something to prove. Quote, He had changed film. He had changed television. But most of that was forgotten. Popular culture turns over quickly. And David Lynch had fallen off the wheel. That was one way to look at Lynch circa Lost Highway, that he had missed a step and was struggling to catch up to a culture that he had played a role in changing. Much writing about Lost Highway suggested that Lynch had been usurped by Quentin Tarantino. To quote Graham Fuller in Interview Magazine, a year or so after Twin Peaks dribbled away, the snappy, casually violent neo-hipsterism of Quentin Tarantino had eclipsed Lynch's strange brew of Magritte and Rockwell. This reading gives the edge to Quentin, but in Premiere, David Foster Wallace put it another way. After listing a number of elements of Pulp Fiction that he thought qualified as Lynchian, he wrote, The peculiar narrative tone of Tarantino's films, the thing that makes them seem at once strident and obscure, not quite clear in a haunting way, is Lynch's. Lynch invented this tone. That might be going too far, and certainly Tarantino's own 1997 release, Jackie Brown, would not strike many as Lynchian at all. But Lost Highway does feel decidedly post-pulp fiction. In some ways, it feels like an answer film to Tarantino, if not a deadpan spoof. Lost Highway's sun-baked auto body shop, its placid facade of residential valley streets, its mob boss and fetish sex, 
all rhyme with Pulp Fiction, but in a way that feels like Lynch has been moved to reclaim his Southern California turf. Hipster pimp Andy's sleek Hollywood house feels like a melding of the Wallace compound in Pulp Fiction with the Beverly Hills penthouse of Tarantino's segment of Four Rooms, which itself had been accused of ripping off Lynch's own TV miniseries about hotel rooms called Hotel Room. Of course, Four Rooms turned out to be a flop. And though it's since been reappraised as one of Tarantino's best films, Jackie Brown was a relative commercial disappointment when it was released at the end of 1997. It still grossed about 10 times more than Lost Highway, which never expanded beyond 333 screens in North America. Seven years after his peak as the coolest filmmaker in America, Lynch was now perceived as a weirdo who had gone so far off the deep end that he couldn't possibly expect the audience to follow him. That was the gist of the segment on the movie on Siskel and Ebert. In this clip, Gene Siskel speaks first and then Roger Ebert. The story, I suppose, is a metaphor for these times, times in which people don't know who they are and are affected mostly by violence. That's the only interpretation I can come up with. David Lynch is a most creative filmmaker, has a fine visual sense, employs great musical scores, but I don't think Lost Highway adds up to much, and therefore, its considerable violence really turned me off. Boy, I feel just about the same way. You know, every time I see a David Lynch picture, I think to myself, this guy is so gifted Mm -hmm. that if he would only just break down and make a movie instead of being so clever all the time and trying to outsmart himself with basically what are sophomoric little plot devices, you know, stuff that... That, it would be very that, hard that to make this convincing. It doesn't pay off. It doesn't yeah. have a purpose. It seems contrived. It seems frustrating. And not to an end. David Lynch saw this as confirmation that he had done something right. As he told Entertainment Weekly, My rule of thumb is, what Siskel and Ebert like, I don't. And vice versa. They're getting too warm in those sweaters. It's affecting their thinking. October Films used Siskel and Ebert's disdain in their ongoing publicity campaign. They bought ads for Lost Highway in the LA Times with two thumbs down in the place where two thumbs up would usually be. Ebert himself understood the psychology. It's saying, our film is cooler than cool. We don't need to be mainstream. Ebert theorized that the ads would help Lost Highway at the box office. Quote, I got lots of email from people who said the ads made them want to see the movie even more. But by the time the two thumbs down ads started running, about a month into the film's run, it was almost too late. Lost Highway was already losing screens to other, more audience-friendly limited releases like Love Jones and Sling Blade which was re-released after Billy Bob Thornton won the Oscar that month for writing it. Lynch seems to have known that, despite the speculation of David Foster Wallace and others, with Lost Highway, he had not made a film that would restore the perceived value he had represented to studios, circa Twin Peaks. Later, musing on the idea of the Lost Highway, Lynch spoke of the compulsion to chase obscurity and the danger in it. There's some kind of pleasure in getting lost, like Chet Baker said, 
let's get lost. And look what happened to him. He fell out a window. Before the movie came out, Lynch held a private screening for a special guest, Marlon Brando. Brando showed up with a burger and fries to eat while watching the movie. And after, he called Lynch and said, It's a damn good film, but it won't make a nickel. As Lost Highway was sliding into obscurity, no one knew that Lynch would have what many would consider to be his signature success just four years later with Mulholland Drive. And certainly no one knew that by the time that movie was released in the fall of 2001, an actor from Lost Highway would be at the center of the highest-profile celebrity murder investigation since the OJ trial. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In December 1996, after Lost Highway was shot, but before it was released, Jack Nance was found dead. Nance had starred in Lynch's first film, Eraserhead, and had appeared in all of Lynch's work since, including 27 episodes of Twin Peaks. Nance had died from a head injury, suffered after getting into a fight with two men outside a Winchell's Donuts. Five years earlier, his wife, Kelly, the niece of Dick Van Dyke and a former porn star, had killed herself. Nance had been on location filming Meatballs 4 at the time. He had tried to reach her over the phone to stop her from hurting herself, but a lightning storm had knocked out the phone lines. Sometime between Kelly's death and Jack's, he had started drinking again after a long period of sobriety. Lynch recalled that Nance told him, one morning I just said, fuck it. All of this sounds like the stuff of a David Lynch film, which was commented on in that Rolling Stone piece on Lost Highway. But in 1997, it was not yet apparent what Lynchian fortune would soon befall Robert Blake. Lost Highway would be the last film in Blake's 58-year screen career. At the premiere party for Lynch's film, Blake joked about how much times had changed. It used to be at a rap party or this kind of party, there would be a lot of light on, there would be a lot of beer, a lot of booze, a lot of food, a lot of fat guys with cigars. Now it's a whole different world. You got thin people. From the back, they all look alike. They're all little, quiet people dressed dark, and they dip cucumbers in something. I feel like I belong in the La Brea Tar Pits. This was vintage Blake. Throughout the many ups and downs of his career, he was frequently profiled and invited on late-night talk shows because he could be relied upon to deliver precious sound bites that often combined hostility directed at the entertainment industry or his family who forced him into it with a kind of self-deprecation. 
Born Michael Gubatosi, at age five, he debuted in one of the R Gang shorts with the crew that would later be known as the Little Rascals. Then known as Mickey, he came from a family of performers slash hustlers slash abusers who had sent him to work against his will. As he later put it, I wasn't a child star. I was a child laborer. After he was dropped by MGM as an adolescent, he got into drugs, both using and selling. He made his first comeback in In Cold Blood in 1967. Based on this performance, Blake was suddenly considered one of the greatest actors working. And he could have and should have taken his place alongside his generation of so-called ethnic actors with an edge. But he had an unusually bad attitude. When John Schlesinger wanted to cast Blake in the Midnight Cowboy part that eventually went to Dustin Hoffman, Blake refused to fly to New York for a meeting. After doing two screen tests, he later said, I told Barbara Streisand to shove funny lady up her ass. He lost that part to James Caan. On another project, he punched the director and word got around that he was more trouble than he was worth. According to one report, he ended up in a mental hospital, tranquilized into submission. If he was mad, Blake said, he was suffering from the madness of Hollywood. His next comeback came as the star of the post-Columbo detective series Beretta in 1975. Beretta was a massive hit, earning Blake an Emmy but he spent the rest of his career bemoaning that he had chosen the quick payday of TV and had sacrificed his movie career in the process. That year, he told People magazine he suffered from what he called Jewish brain fever. After three years on Beretta, which was the number one show on TV for a time, Blake had a nervous breakdown then made another comeback playing Jimmy Hoffa in a TV movie called Blood Feud. This cycle seemed to repeat ad infinitum. A big break, great reviews, then a meltdown. Profiled for Detour magazine in 1995, Blake explained how he was attempting to put his fractured self back together in therapy. When I was 10 or 12 years old, some horrible, horrible, horrible things happened. And my life ended. And Mickey Gubitosi, which is who I was, was killed. I left MGM and went into total oblivion. And I became Bobby Blake. And Bobby Blake hated Mickey. When I got to be 22 or 23 years old, I invented a character named Robert Blake, this tough, surly, nasty motherfucker that nobody would go near. And he hated Bobby. So in my therapy, I've recovered Mickey. But my life was very incomplete and troubled. And I discovered in the last couple of months that it's because Bobby was totally neglected and I've hated him all my life because he was sensitive and he was sad and he was lonely. And I wanted to be Beretta so then nobody would fuck with me. This profile was to herald yet another Blake comeback via his role in Money Train and a biopic of George Jones that he was hoping to make with Quentin Tarantino. Two years earlier, he had had a facelift, telling Variety, everyone wants to look as young as Macaulay Culkin, so I'm going to get my face circumcised. 
now, he said, he regretted succumbing to peer pressure. All of the guys I went to acting class with who became movie stars look the same way they did back in acting class, except they have mouths like lizards. So I went and did it. Now I look like them. It sucks what's happening to our society. Every chick's got a chest full of styrofoam, and we all encourage each other to do it. I'm sorry I gave in to that shit. A couple of years after Lost Highway, Blake met Bonnie Lee Bakley in a jazz club. She had been hunting for a famous husband for a long time. A relationship with Jerry Lee Lewis had fallen apart when she had become pregnant, and he had refused to acknowledge the child as his. When she met Blake, she was also pursuing Marlon Brando's son, Christian. When a friend asked her why she was so attracted to famous men, she said, being around celebrities makes you feel better than other people. Blake and Bakley married after she gave birth to a child who was proven via DNA test to be fathered by Blake. Bakley lived in a back house on Blake's property, from which she continued running a scam that had been her lifeblood for a long time, using the personal ads in newspapers to find lonely men to whom she would send sexy photos, then coax into sending her money. At least this was how this was reported at the time, that Bakley was a scam artist preying on poor, defenseless, horny strangers. Today, she would be a girl boss content creator on OnlyFans. Then, one of her friends described her to the police as, quote, a mail order whore. Blake hired a detective to find out everything about his new wife that she hadn't told him, and he was horrified by what he learned. She's a scum of the earth, Blake told his former assistant, who he hired to pretend to be a nanny as part of an attempt to steal the baby from Bakley. Then, on one May night in 2001, Blake took Bakley out to dinner at his favorite local restaurant, Vitello's, which had a dish on the menu called Fusilli Robert Blake, involving fresh tomatoes and spinach. Vitello's also had a parking lot, but instead of using it, Blake parked his car a block and a half away behind a dumpster. After dinner, he walked Bakley back to the car and then told her he had to go back to Vitello's because he left his gun in the booth where they had been sitting. Blake jogged back to the restaurant, asked the host for a glass of water, gulped down two glasses of water, and then returned to his car. A few minutes later, he ran to a neighbor and asked them to call 911. His wife had been shot. It took the LAPD almost a year to build a case against Blake and charge him with his wife's murder. During that time, a media that had enjoyed profiting off of the OJ trials made sure to keep speculation about Blake's guilt in the news. GQ even hired James Elroy to write about the Blake case in a piece that was published a couple of months before the actor was arrested. Dominic Dunn, a victim's advocate and famed chronicler of Simpsons and other celebrity trials, began working Blake into his monthly columns in Vanity Fair, even though, as he wrote in August 2001, 
The Blake story doesn't begin to match the glamour of the Simpson case. This is a low-rent version, but it has all the elements of a film noir, that genre of black-and-white films made so well during the 40s and 50s at RKO, with stars such as Elizabeth Scott, Jane Greer, and Gloria Graham, any one of whom could have played Bonnie Lee Bakley Blake. All three of those B-noir stars were much more glamorous than the characters that would come to populate the unfolding investigation of Bakley's death, which truly became a mirror on a version of over-the-hill film industry life. Over-the-hill as in past its prime age-wise, and also over the hill as in the valley, which is literally separated from Hollywood proper by a mountain range. An aging stuntman named Gary McLarty told police he had met Blake at Dupar's, a coffee shop on Ventura Boulevard that hadn't been remodeled since the noir era, to discuss Blake hiring McLarty to kill Bakley. Oh, man. McLarty said to investigators while recalling that meeting at Dupar's. Like, reality was overwhelming, to say the least. Reality was overwhelming. For Blake, for O.J. Simpson, and for the violent male protagonists of both Boxing Helena and Lost Highway, both of whom disappeared into their own minds as a method of coping with their horrible impulses but truth was at least as strange as fiction. When Blake was arrested in April 2002 and charged with murder, O.J. Simpson, seven years removed from his own murder trial, was asked to comment. My first reaction was an immediate feeling of compassion, Simpson said, adding a piece of advice. Don't watch TV, Robert. Dominic Dunn reported, quote, that O.J. was in discussions with two networks about being a paid analyst on the Blake murder trial. That, Dunn added, seems in keeping with the current mad state of the world. Remember, this was happening just months after 9-11. Instead of watching TV, Blake used TV, giving what many felt was an ill-advised jailhouse interview to Barbara Walters a year before he was tried. Do you think that the films that you made people think is Robert Blake? No. You don't, so you don't think that's hurting you today? The cops did that. The cops invented that person and shoved it down the press's throat and the press loved it. What if you are found guilty? What are they gonna do to me? What are they gonna do to me that they haven't done already? What are they going to do to me that they haven't done already? They took away my entire past. They took away my entire future. They took away everything I saved for. They took away everything I believed in. What's left for them to take? They're going to take my testicles and make earrings out of them? But when the prosecution brought up this interview in court, it apparently backfired because it allowed the jury to see Blake, who didn't testify, as human. The LAPD was convinced Blake had shot Bakley himself, but they didn't really have the physical evidence. He was acquitted, and then, just like O.J., he lost a civil trial and was ordered to pay an eight-figure settlement to Bakley's children. This was more symbolic than anything else, 
Nothing the two trials revealed about Blake's milieu suggested that he had tens of millions of dollars in the bank. And there was no work in movies and TV available to him. And yet, he still hung around for another nearly 20 years, writing a book, starting a YouTube channel, before he finally passed away at age 89 in 2023. In the old noir films, at the end of the story, as karmic punishment for whatever the femme fatale had driven him to do, the male protagonist would usually die. In these four post-noirs, Boxing Helena, Lost Highway, and The Real Lives of O.J. Simpson and Robert Blake, the sweet relief of death proved elusive. What's the bigger punishment? Dying? Or having to live with the knowledge of who you really are? That's a question next week's film also deals with, sort of. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Now, top-tier subscribers to Patreon can hear ad-free episodes. You can also subscribe to ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. 
They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.